0: For the week of July 1st, 2023, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 621, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news-making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay sperling Reich, And
1: outside a Moe's Restaurant in Birmingham, Alabama, I'm Michael Giltz.
0: And, and really, you're, you are outside a Moe's Restaurant. I would never lie about such a thing. By I the way, go- I think it was the, the week of July 2nd, isn't it? because Sunday was July 2nd. but uh, who, You're right, you're who's, right. Who's counting? Who's oh, counting?
1: Yes, we're recording the day before July 4th on a Monday, uh, but we record the week for the week ending on a Sunday. That's how we do it. If we'd recorded the last two weeks, this is the first show in three weeks, uh, why I would have been in Pennsylvania and Toronto. Where would you have been, Sperling?
0: I would have been in Barcelona for Cine Europe and then Madrid uh, for after Cine Europe. And was it a good Cine Europe? It was a very good city of Europe. Uh, I will say that uh, I would almost go so far as to say it was hot because it was really <laughs> hot, actually. It was so hot. I mean, Madrid, so hot. I, I totally forgot how hot Spain can be and why they take siestas and why the word siesta comes from Spain.
1: <laughs> well, I was in Pennsylvania for a wedding. My nephew, Kevin, got married to Sabrina at an outdoor event, including a sand ceremony where they united the sands of the two families. I really liked that aspect. And in Toronto, I took my mom, who's 94 years old. We went. We drove to Pennsylvania for the wedding. Then we drove to Toronto to visit her family. We saw my Aunt Judy, uh, my uh, cousin Libby, and her husband, Mark. And we had a barbecue at my cousin Jonathan and his wife, Sarah, and their two kids, River and Atlas. Because of COVID, Atlas is five years old, and this is the first time we were meeting Atlas, so that was fun. River played catch with his dad outdoors like Field of Dreams while I was the ball boy. And Atlas sang the Aussie rapper Bad Wolf's hit, Astronaut in the Ocean, which was a little unexpected, but there you go. And while we were gone, I got a correction. I made a mistake on Funny Girl. This is what happens when you help friends book tickets. I was booking tickets through September, like the last weekend of Funny Girl. And so in my head, Funny Girl was done. You know, I I just I've already been dealing with the last weekend of the show. And in my mind, it was over. So when I talked about the Tonys and how they had a performance on the Tonys, I said, oh, look, it's already gone and still get to perform on the show. And uh, reader Tom Phillips called in and said, no, 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 it's still running through September 3rd. And he managed to point that out without making fun of me. So I appreciate it. And finally, Pat Sajak retired from Wheel of Fortune. Not a big deal, except when they replaced the the head of Jeopardy! It was a months-long drama. Not so here. But first, my family was really angry when I said I did not want to be the host of Wheel of Fortune. I would find that embarrassing. It would be like, for God's sakes, do you know how much money he makes? I go, it's just not something I want to do. Like, it's not, you know, Jeopardy! Yes, Wheel of Fortune! No, no thank you. You take it. Uh, And they were angry with me, furious with me. And then, of course, Ryan Seacrest stepped in and he and he nabbed the rights to be the host of Wheel of Fortune. Whereas in the UK, Graham Norton will also be the host of Wheel of Fortune. I've interviewed both of them and my family says it would be better if you were one of them. But that's not how it works.
0: (laughs) Well, can I just say, uh, first of all, uh, you know, I'm just disappointed that uh, apparently I was on the list. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, yeah, I was number 1,033 uh, on the list. That's not bad. That's not that's bad. That's not bad, but uh, they didn't make it that far, actually. I don't think they made it past one. Ryan um, Seacrest, yeah. Ryan Seacrest.
1: It's a good choice for Wheel of Fortune. Uh, I'm sure he'll handle it well. Uh, you know, my brother's, what is he? He's got no skills. I go, well, he's a host. He, what that doesn't mean anything. I go, well, it's called Game Show Host, <laughs> and that's actually what he's doing. So American Idol is good training, a live American Idol is, good, you know, that shows you can be a host, but he wasn't interested.
0: Well, I also think we need to call timeout uh, and, on uh, Ryan Seacrest getting any more. Well, jobs. he doesn't have any
1: room. He doesn't have any room. That's true. Well, he did step down from live with uh, Kelly and, 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 and Ryan. So, you know, he had a little s- slot in his podcast. But we have a slot open because we've got three weeks of coverage to catch up. What are we going to talk about this week?
0: Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we're talking about how my microphone is buzzy and you're literally <laughs> outside a restaurant. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I can hear the, the, like, the cars whizzing by you and the emergency seatbelt thingy coming on. Uh, so you're literally, it's that's so how hot. dedicated I, you it's are. It's so hot, I
1: had to turn the air on. I can't leave it on for an hour, but there you go. But your mic is buzzy and
0: we blame Amazon. Yeah, because the XLR cable that I ordered two weeks ago. They're, they're eventually going to get it to me in one to two days. <laughs> what, what that one to two days is, they haven't said, but eventually they'll get it to me. Uh, but on today's episode, we're talking about the strikes. The writers are striking. The directors are working on it. They finished their deal, actually. And the actors, they're still talking. In fact, they're going to talk a little bit more. I think what they well, we'll talk about what I think regarding the actors uh, deal. Uh, but very little is getting done with the prospect of both writers and actors on the picket line. As it is, shooting is happening in LA, and we hear the no, writers are arranging... C- virtually
1: not. Uh, shoot- virtually not, you're right. Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, and we hear the writers there, I guess, arranging a caravan to head to Canada and beyond. Not, <laughs> I don't think so. But who knows? Who knows? They might. Maybe we'll discuss the latest uh, on the labor disputes, uh, worldwide rallies, the impact on Comic-Con and more. In legal news, director Luc Basson will not face a trial over his alleged sexual assault or rape of an actress. That was what he was accused of. However, the media made a mistake when describing what actually happened. Also, artist Kesha and producer Dr. Luke released joint statements saying they were both walking away from their decade long battle over her claims that he raped and abused her. And I do mean decade long. It's been 10 years. Wow. In streaming, Netflix is offering up a new metric so people can better compare how popular, say, a movie is versus a 10 episode drama. It's it's kind of a nice thing. Yeah, it's not transparent at all. So, there is no transparency there. On Inside Baseball, we'll look at major trends in film and TV. The services from PWC, you know, they were once and actually kind of still are known as Price Waterhouse Coopers, but nobody actually refers to them as that anymore. They offered up a lot of crystal balling, which, by the way, is our new verb. We invented it. We want credit. Call Webster. Ding. We'll consult our own Magic 8 Ball to let you know if their predictions are decidedly so. Outlook Hazy, so try again later, or Very Doubtful. And if you don't know that reference, You don't know Magic 8-Ball. Right. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office, where he will be dialing in the destiny of Indiana Jones.
1: (laughs) Well, we are looking at box office around the world. In our show notes, we will have box office for the last two weeks. We should have three weeks in a row, but every week when we create a new bunch of show notes, I create the new box office by cannibalizing the old one because there's already a copy elsewhere. So I have that old box office and I cut and paste every time I get an updated box office total. And that lets me know how many movies have not been tracked and fallen through the cracks. So I know, okay, here's seven movies I need to track down and see if they're still making money. That's how I do it. But two weeks ago when I did it, I forgot that there'd been no show and that this was the only record of that box office, and I erased it. So it was like, oops, and I didn't bother to fill back in the blanks. So we will have an, a gap forever in our knowledge of box office going back two weeks ago. But we have last week for the week ending June 25th, and this week for the week ending July 2nd. And the worldwide box office is good. Indiana Jones opened up around the world, and so the number one movie is, of course, the Chinese film Lost in the Stars. Do they need Hollywood movies? No, they don't. In China, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny made $2.3 million. None of the other movies were released in China theatrically. People certainly saw them on bootlegs and such, but there's no big audience for it. They did have the opportunity, I think, to advertise it and launch it, but nobody cared. But the number one movie for two weeks in a row now is Lost in the Stars. It's a Chinese suspense film, sort of like Martin Gare but it's more of a thriller where a missing wife returns and the husband's like, that's not my wife. It made a hundred million dollars last week, though I'm a little confused about how that all worked. But this week it made another $220 million. So it's worldwide total is $320 million. We have no idea how much it cost. but in two weeks, whenever it first came out, maybe there were some previous before that, but in the past Fourteen days, it has made three hundred and twenty million dollars. This is a massive box office hit. the The budget cannot be that big. It's a straightforward thriller drama, so this is a huge, huge hit around the world. Making almost half of that amount at number two is Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. It opened to one hundred and thirty million dollars worldwide. So so reviews, not great buzz from Khan, uh, not great critical reviews. Audiences are like, okay, and most of the people who turned out were older people like me, people in their 40s and
0: 50s. This is definitely the sequel nobody asked for. It's like, hey, remember the last movie you made wasn't so great, and then you waited 15 years to make the next movie? Well, we weren't asking you to, and we kind of liked the very first one, but that was 30-something years ago. That was 40 years ago. 40 years ago. So, and, And you know what? Can I just go back for just one second? to mm-hmm. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny in China, because whenever I hear something like, oh, my God, it opened up to $2.3 million in, in a country like China, I say, OK, what's going on here? So if you pull up the box office from there, the number of showings for Lost in the Stars, the number of screenings, 190,000, over 190,000 screenings, nearly 191,000 screenings. For the number of showtimes that Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny got, 9,770. But
1: those are not sold-out screenings, and people weren't demanding more screenings, and they weren't giving it to them, right? That was a reflection of the demand.
0: I think that's probably—well, I think yes and no. I mean, you never know in that country. Uh, But— Uh, who knows? I would, but I would say this: you're probably right. But you never. At the same time, you can't take that for granted. Unfortunately,
1: you could. You could say they're throttling back on the movie, but it had an opportunity, I believe, to advertise. I think they had enough warning that they knew they could set it up commercially and advertise. It wasn't one of those last-second approvals. I think they had enough advance warning that they could advertise it and let people know it's possible that they throttled back on the showings, or it's possible that you know, nobody showed up Thursday and Friday and they said, well, we've got Lost in the Stars and people are clamoring, you know, made 100 times as much money. <laughs> it made, well, and what, a, what's it made interesting. 100 times as much money. So they said, you're going to get 100 times as much, uh, you know, in fact, it's not even close. 100 times as much money, but they only had uh, like 20 times as many screenings. So yeah, well, right, 9,000 to, 100, to uh, uh, 180,000 screenings that would be, you know, that's 20 times more screenings, right? 1900 screenings, or, or what was it?
0: 190,000. Right, basically.
1: So that's tw- about 20 times as many screenings, but it made 100 times as much money. Two, mil- two million versus 200 million. So it outperformed five to one on the screenings that they each had. Now, we're just doing this off the top of our head based on the little knowledge we have. If you're in China or you know the market better and you know what was going on with Indian loss in the stars, tell us.
0: Yes, you can write to us dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. Or you can call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. Or you can follow us on Twitter at showbizsandbox is our handle or like us on Facebook, Uh, facebook facebook.com slash showbizsandbox is where you can like our page. Now, what I will point out is we do have some email that we will be going through next week because we have so much to go through this week uh and i will also point out that vietnam is not going to show barbie because of the notes okay bye
1: (laughs) you didn't read the notes yes you can keep going barbie will not be showed in vietnam why
0: because there's a map that kind of shows the south china sea is belonging to china something that vietnam disputes so they're like yeah you know what You want to please china congratulations you've pleased china you're not pleasing us you're out
1: let's not say vietnam disputes it was ruled on by the u.n at the hague and they said china is wrong they do not they rejected china's claim on the territory it was claiming in the south china sea there are a number of countries that have territory that overlaps and they claim i have this i have that but the u.n said no china you're wrong there's no enforcement mechanism but the world has rejected China's claims of sovereignty over those areas of the South China Sea. That map with the nine dash line or whatever it's called. No, they have rejected that worldwide. So it's not just Vietnam. And Hollywood should not be catering to China just to do that.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. And I would also say that, uh, you know, there are uh, military flights from different uh, countries that fly through that zone and are approached by uh, Chinese you know, uh, fighter aircraft. Yeah. And they have to, they, they do it as a way to say to, to, you know, we're not giving up the rights to this.
1: Yeah, correct. Yeah. Yeah. And it creates tension. They do it with ships as well. All right. Back to the box office. Lost in the stars made $220 million this week. Indiana Jones made about 130 million. I saw it. You know what? It's not as bad as the last two. It's not great, but it wasn't embarrassing. There are lots. It's not good. I gave it two stars out of four, but, It was ultimately okay. Uh, At number three. You know
0: what? They should never have gone to Cannes with that movie. I don't know what they were thinking. They thought, we're going to pull a Top Gun. It's like, you had, no. Top Gun came out.
1: I don't think that hurt the movie at all. The Uh, whole world knew the movie was coming out. Uh, They they didn't have it in the competition. Uh, They got the flash and the light and the flash bulbs and everything that they wanted. I don't think, there's plenty of movies that play Cannes that aren't big critical favorites but they're you know they launched their worldwide success i think it's just not a good movie elemental at number three made 66 million dollars it's at 187 million dollars worldwide spider-man across the spider-verse this is the second big success story first is lost in the stars now the new spidey animated film made another 50 million dollars it passed the 600 million dollar mark and one of the creators of a lot of the villains of spidey john romita senior a famous cartoonist He has died at the age of 93. He worked on Punisher, lots of different characters, and is a big name in comic books, so sorry to see him go. Transformers Rise of the Beast made another $40 million. That's struggling to pass $400 million worldwide. It's at $381 million right now. The Flash, which Warner Brothers told us is one of the best superhero movies of all time. Critics and audiences disagree. It made $34 million this week. It's at $245 million and counting back to China, we have a new movie called Never Say Never. It made $30 million this week. Uh, There was a TV show of the same name in 2019. I don't think that they're related from China, but its total is now $39 million. The Little Mermaid is chugging along, actually. Another $25 million this week. It's at $525 million worldwide, and it's huge in the Philippines. They love it there. Jennifer Lawrence made a risky business sort of move by making the R-rated comedy No Hard Feelings. Is it paying off? Uh, Not yet, but it's okay. $24 million this week. It's at $50 million worldwide. And a charming movie from China that should be remade by Hollywood. It's called Love Never Ends. It's about two old seniors who are pretty broke, but by God, they're in love. It's a heart tugger. It made $22 million this week. It's at about $50 million worldwide. Fast X is at the $700 million mark, but it needed to make about a billion dollars in order to break even at box office alone. That's what the Super Mario Brothers movie did. It's still making money. $1,347,000,000 worldwide. It's the 15th top grossing movie worldwide of all time. Asteroid City, the Wes Anderson film, is off to a strong start. It had the best weekend of his career uh, last week, or something. It made thirteen million dollars this week. It's in a number of territories, and it's made thirty million dollars so far. We'll have to see where it ends up. I saw it, and I have to say, it's my least favorite Wes Anderson film. All the complaints people have about it are are in full force on this one.
0: And and, you know, a couple of the uh, movie theater operators that I talked to, they said they do not understand why people are coming They said, you know, we can't get anybody into Elemental. But people are coming to see Asteroid City. They have no idea why. Well, but but of course they do. He's like Woody Allen. He's a name brand director. He's made about a dozen
1: movies, animated and live action. He has mostly great critical reviews. He's uh, not a huge box office force, but he has built up a steady following. And no matter what he makes right now, just like Woody for a decade or two, people will show up and turn out to see them just like I did. You're not going to like every movie, but you know what? Over half of his movies I've had on my best of the year list. Uh, some others have been okay. There's just only two or three that I really didn't like, this one being my least favorite, but I was happy to show up for him on opening weekend, and I'm glad to see him making money because I want him to continue to make the movies he wants to make at a price. This is a $25 million budget. That seems perfectly reasonable. That's a well worthy gamble to make for this type of movie, and I don't think ultimately you're going to lose a lot of money, if any, on this movie because... It's going to be a valuable part of your catalog for a long time to come, even if I didn't think it was that good. Uh, Right below that is Ruby Gilman, Teenage Kraken, yet another by-the-numbers animated movie. It just looks very, very familiar when you watch the trailer, and that's how audiences responded. It opened to a modest $13 million. Back to China, where the—oh, my my, my music started playing. Uh, Godspeed, that family road trip comedy, is at $175 million worldwide. Now we have a movie from India. It's the action film called Adipurush. It's uh, sort of very loosely based on Ramayana. It's made a total of $55 million worldwide, but it's a very expensive, elaborate movie that cost about $60 million to make. And it's getting it from all sides. There have been some stories about this movie. The right-wing people don't like it because it's not faithful enough to the Ramayana, and they feel it's heretical. The people on the left don't like it because it's too conventional. <laughs> It's really fallen through the cracks. It really hasn't seemed to please anyone. Uh, it was a, a hoped-for movie to be a big hit, and they had their fingers crossed, and it's just not working out. Guardians of the Galaxy is chugging along. The Boogeyman, that Stephen King film, that's at $60 million. In Korea, we have The Roundup, No Way Out, third in a thriller series. The first made $50 million, The second made $100 million. This one is almost done at $75 million, So I think this is a series that has come to a natural conclusion. No need to make any more. Certainly, we'll be seeing more from director Celine Song. She is the debut director of Past Lives, a Sundance favorite from A24 that's doing really well in North America and a few other territories. It's made $7 million so far. I don't know what the budget was, but it's modest. It's one of the best reviews movies of the year. It's sort of a brief encounter for younger people. It's about two kids in Korea who are really best friends when they're 12, a boy and a girl. And then her family moves away to Canada, and they don't reunite for 24 years. They meet up on Zoom when they're 24, and then when they're 36, they meet again in person. And there's the tension of, were they meant to be together? Should they be together? Are they in relationships or not? How are they going? It's a very quiet, understated, bittersweet movie. I really liked it a lot. It'll certainly be on my best of the year list.
0: This this movie to me so far this year is one of the best movies of the year if not the I mean I I remember seeing this at Sundance going and it's nominated for best picture because I was just like that last scene just that devastating last moment is just so good and you're just like how did she do that it, it's, <laughs> it's such a good movie.
1: Uh, yes and um you know it's one of the success stories of the holiday weekend it's still going strong. But like you say, that it hasn't been a great July 4th weekend at the box office here in North America.
0: Only three films cracked the, the, uh, you know, the $10 million mark, at least in North America, over the July 4th weekend. And just to give you some comparison, 10 years ago, we had eight films in that category.
1: Yeah, that's, that's saying something. We also had a lot of changes in the calendar. Avatar 3 pushed back to 2025, and then they're giving four years. First, they were going to be every other year. Now, it's Avatar 3 comes out in 2025. Avatar 4 comes out in 2029, and then Avatar 5, in a brisk two years after that, in 2031. That, of course, sent a ripple effect through everybody else's schedule, all sorts of movies pushed back forth and all this sort of stuff, including Avengers The Kang Dynasty, which is pushed back to 2026, which makes sense since star Jonathan Majors is facing multiple assault charges, and they're clearly... They, want to, they shouldn't abandon an actor who hasn't been found guilty, but they want to find out what's going to go on and so they can decide how to proceed with that movie and his role in it. He was going to be a major big baddie in a number of Marvel movies, and that's uh, being confused by the various serious charges that he is facing in court. Another company that's facing serious charges is Cineworld. They are restructuring. They're trying to work out their debt and get back on their feet. And in the new plan that they have, it seems like stockholders are going to be wiped out. They're going to lose everything. And that's not unusual. When companies collapse or when there's a big restructuring, the people who own private stock in a company are always the last in line. It's debtors and other people like that and the company itself. You're an investor in them. You're, you're last in line. But don't worry. CEO Mookie Greidinger, his brother, and two other execs will get a combined $35 million for agreeing to stay on and smooth the transition that might that might take you off if you're an investor
0: <laughs> yeah well okay a couple things here one uh this you know they filed for bank cineworld which owns regal here in the united states uh they're the second largest theater operator in the world uh and, and if they invested
1: in them you're out of luck
0: yeah they they filed for bankruptcy last september and so they're now coming out of bankruptcy. The judge, I believe, approved the, uh, the new plan, you know, restructuring plan. Yeah. So, in, in, but in a bankruptcy, all shareholders of a public company, they are the owners. You are an owner, just like Mookie Gridinger was an owner. Now, there's a difference when you're an owner and you're an insider and you're a manager. Uh, <laughs> he got wiped out too. All of his stock is worthless as well. So he oh, lost well, hundreds of so, millions so of dollars. So he's only going to make $35 million. <laughs> No, so so basically, here's the thing. There's a difference when you are an owner and the manager versus being an owner as a shareholder. He was driving the car. It's like you're a passenger in a car. He had the ability to drive the car over the cliff. So all the lenders are saying is, hey, we're going to pay you to be a consultant for the next six months, but you're out. Okay, you're basically going away. This is your severance package you're fired. And you, please don't drive the car over the cliff. And as a thank you for not driving the car over the cliff, since you're in control of it during this whole bankruptcy process, we'll give you a nice consulting agreement on the way out. I think I, I agree with you. It's kind of ridiculous, but
1: that's well, the way they get around it. Why
0: you, I'm, you're not getting around it. You're defending it. It's wrong. Well, no, I'm, I'm saying this is how they're doing it. I'm explaining the, what, the process of like Right, the you know, the, the, this,
1: the fat cats in the in the exec who drove them off a cliff get money, but nobody else does. Well, no,
0: they, they didn't drive them off a cliff because the company is still standing and it wasn't liquidated. So the lenders took over essentially. Uh huh. But the company was like five billion dollars in debt. But who, whose fault is that? That's his fault. Well, there you go. Uh, that's that's driving yeah. it off a cliff. You loaded well, down with debt. How
1: much money has he made over the last twenty years being the head of World? You can talk oh, all about the stock. Yeah. Tens of millions, $100 million, just, and now he gets another 10 or $15 million to stay on board for the transition? Golly, here, let me get up my tiny violin.
0: Well, l- you're not going to get me defending Mookie Greidinger. So well, let's you just do it. All right, so we'll move on to the other
1: people who are not happy when top studio execs make a lot of money, but they don't. Everybody's striking or trying to come to a deal in Hollywood. The DGA struck a deal, and now they're looking to get support from their voters, and the DGA members weighed in. It was ratified with 87% support. We'll come back to all this, but let me just give a quick rundown of what's happened. The SAG talks say their talks, SAG-AFTRA, have been, quote, extremely productive, and they were hopeful a deal could be made. After that happened... Top actors went public, penning a letter, telling leadership, this is not the time to accept half a loaf. We need massive changes in our business to protect the working everyday members. And we do not need an okay deal. We need a transformative deal. We are ready to strike. And we know how easy that is for us to say, because we're the wealthy actors, but this is not the time to drop the ball. And even Fran Drescher ultimately signed up on that deal. SAG-AFTRA since then, has extended the talks to July 12th. So we'll have to see what happens there. There have A been rallies points. around the world. We're not done yet. A couple rallies around the world for the writers. Other writer guilds around the world have held rallies to show support for the WGA, including in London, Berlin, and beyond. Russell T. Davies, who oversees Doctor Who, says, you know what? What happens in the U.S. happens here in London. Comic-Con fell apart because with the writers' strike and the actors' striking and everybody's striking, they really couldn't have any studios show up with actors in tow to support their movies. So it's bad for the studios who can't promote the movies, even worse for Comic-Con, which is just struggling to get out financially after the pandemic. And in general, pretty much TV production in LA, even studio work seems to have shut down. So let's go back. The DGA deal was ratified with 87 support of the members. What do you think of that?
0: Well, uh, you know, statistics, st- lies, 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 and statistics, or is it statistics? I can't That's remember not what statistic. to say. a statistic,
1: it's a fact.
0: Right. But uh, what I'm saying is the way they're, it's 87% of those that voted, which is only like 30% of those members. Why, so what, it's like 87% why, why only, of 30.
1: 30- why are you saying only a third of the members weighed in on this strike? I haven't seen that stat information.
0: Yeah. And it's weird it, because the same thing is true of, of the, whenever they ratify these deals, it's the same thing. SAG, WGA, whenever these deals get ratified, it's only like a quarter to half the, half the membership votes and then they say it was, it was approved by 90%. It's like, well, no, that particular group Where
1: did you you read that only one third of all DGA members bothered to vote on this ratification? uh, Are you making that up or is that? No, no, no,
0: no, it's, it's, by the way, they've gone back. Was that a
1: running tally or are they updating that information as they get the final numbers in?
0: No, I think that was when they, when they said it, they said, you know, hey, and and they went back in time. They said the last deal in 2017 was this many, you know, was, was ratified by 85% of, of the voting of those that voted. Uh, and they went back to, I think twenty thirteen, the same thing or twenty fourteen. but did so they, they kept show how many back people
1: but how many people voted? Did they give you that?
0: Yes, exactly. That's what they were trying to do. Uh, and you're saying say. this is an
1: unusual number of low or high people voting? no,
0: it's, it's it's like average. That's what I'm saying. It's like of those that vote, this is what what you would get. the The re- reality is, the long and short of it is, there wasn't enough pushback from those that really didn't like this deal. There wasn't enough of them voting no.
1: well, i I disagree in a way. I think. If two-thirds of the member don't vote, that means they're perfectly happy with what, what's happening. I, I can't take that as a yes vote per se, but they weren't riled up enough to vote no and, and bother. I don't know why the voted would be so low if they can do it by email. Maybe it's to get something sent in the mail. I don't know, but we've already given you our info. If you know what goes on when you have to approve these deals and is it super cumbersome for you to do so, let us know.
0: But by the way, thought, By the way, here it is in Variety, 41% turnout.
1: turnout. And is that low? And they're saying that's typical?
0: Yeah, roughly. Yeah. I think one year it was like 35% turnout.
1: So 60% didn't bother to vote. One assumes that mean they were okay with what was going on. If they hated it, they would vote. One assumes. I wonder how difficult it is to vote. But frankly, when I saw 87% of the people who bothered to vote supported it, I thought that was pretty awful because absolutely no organized protest against this deal was out there. Both, uh, every faction seemed to in general be like, yeah, yeah, it's a fine. It's all right. So if you can't even get above 90% when nobody's opposing it, that seems like a pretty, that means one out of seven people said no, when there was no organized protest against it. That seems pretty tepid support to me. When you had 98% of SAG members saying we're ready to strike, the 98% of the members who voted saying we're ready to strike, that's a big signal. When you can't even get one out of, you know, when you've got one out of seven people saying I'm not happy, that seems like a lot to me. The,
0: the people that were opposed to it, their, their campaign was on Twitter, which is like screaming into the wind. It's like, why are well, you? I,
1: I, they would yell at them if they weren't on Twitter as well. But I agree. Yeah. Twitter's not a good forum. But I didn't I didn't know of any major group that was organized or it wasn't the major, organized at all.
0: The, the no right. vote was not organized well, at all.
1: Right. So somebody opposed it and it was on Twitter. That doesn't mean one of the major usually there's major groups fighting for right. you know, control of the DGA. Nobody was saying they were opposed to this deal. Anyway, what do you think about SAGS? I thought it was crazy. The top actors and people coming out saying, you know what? This is not the time to make a crappy deal.
0: I think I think that everybody expected there to be a strike. And June 30th came around. And you know what SAG said? First of all, I love the fact that Fran Drescher signed on to that with the one thousand of the top actors in SAG signing this letter saying, you know, we're ready to strike. And she wrote a letter to herself. She's the president of SAG. So it's like she's she signed on. <laughs> Dear Fran, <laughs> we're ready to strike. signed fran um in any case i think that they got to june 30th they realized hey uh it's a friday tomorrow's a saturday tomorrow would be the first day of striking we'd be striking on a holiday weekend (laughs) what are we doing let's postpone it to july 12th which is really only what No, no 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 what happened was
1: the sag people who were who were negotiating said we're very happy with the with the with the progress we're making, and we hope we think a deal can be made before the deadline. That was before they extended the deadline. After that, this letter was released from all the top actors saying, You better not be making some wimpy ass, half assed, half a loaf of bread deal. This is not the time for a, eh, that's okay deal. We need a major change. Our, our actors are suffering. There was a huge outcry from people who were saying, you better, yeah. you better not be making some wimpy deal. After that is when they said, we're going to extend talks through July 12th. Um, but they've lit a fire under the leadership, which Fran Drescher went along with. Everybody supported her re reelection, right? Everybody said, we're going to be united. We're going to all support Fran Drescher. Both factions were supporting her. Everybody was ready to strike. And then suddenly you're hearing from the people at the table, oh, we're pretty good. We're happy. It's like, Really? You're getting a massive, transformative, unbelievable wow! We've really changed how business is done. Deal, because that wasn't what was about to happen. They were about to make a deal like the directors, where you're even losing money in your third year in terms of inflation. You're not making up for what you lost the last three years, and you're gonna be falling behind in the next three years in that wimpy deal that the directors signed. And they were saying we're not doing that. So I thought this is not about you know what the holiday weekend and scheduling. This is about the. The rank and file lighting a fire under the leadership and saying, don't you dare make a lame ass deal. This is not the time.
0: Well, uh, the agents I spoke with, and they called it a couple days out. They said, here's what's going to happen. Uh, they, they don't want to. First of all, you have the last of the big summer movies coming out in July 12th through the 19th. They need to promote those movies. If there's a strike, the actors can't promote them. Well, that's uh, smart. Yeah. And they don't want to start a. They don't want the deadline to be on a Friday where the next day is a weekend, so they're going to do it during the middle of the week. Well, that's smart, but that's got nothing to do with the fact that the leadership was saying, we're we're getting a good deal here. We're we're
1: feeling very positive about maybe striking a deal.
0: The striking, the sticking point now seems to be around if they get residuals, they want the residuals to be given to those that uh, are certainly, you know, They want to reward success. So you have a successful show on streaming, reward that. The problem is, how do you measure success when you basically have no transparency and and there's no way to tell if something is successful? Netflix just says, trust me, this one worked. That's not a sticking
1: point. That's one of the
0: fundamental
1: realignments of the business that they need to deal with. Right, so the directors punted. And the actors are saying, we don't want to punt. We need a transformative major change in how we're doing business with the streamers and the studios, because this isn't working. So right. we'll have to see what happens. But I think it's, I think it's a, uh, a significant change. There's certainly been a significant change in two of the social justice uh, cases that have been before the public. Director Luke Passon will not face a trial over the rape claim that he faced from actor Sand Van Roy. Uh, she said that Passon had raped her. They'd been in a romantic relationship for several years, which of course complicates a court case tremendously. The French courts did say that Van Roy will not be able to file charges again on this case in France or indeed anywhere in Europe. Now, she had her claims taken pretty seriously. There were two separate investigations, both criminal and civil, that lasted years. In all, there had been four judicial instructions in the case, meaning a court considered evidence and decided what should happen next. In this case, the case was dismissed and she must pay Basson 2,500 euros. However, when the trades covered this, they all said he's been found innocent or he's been cleared of all charges as if, you know, they said, no, he's not guilty. It's great. It's like, no, that's not quite right. The court document obtained by Variety said, quote, after examining the admissibility of the appeal and the files from the instruction, we've determined that there doesn't exist at present any means to allow for the admission of the appeal. Now, that's certainly not very satisfying for Luc Besson. It's like, once you've been charged, you're guilty until proven innocent. Is that fair? No, but it's not fair to say that he was cleared of all charges either and that she was found to you know, be lying or not telling the truth or there's no, there's no evidence for it. They just couldn't make a case and proceed to trial. And let's remember, after she went public, eight additional women stepped forward and said they had been sexually harassed or assaulted by Luc Besson. So to act like he has been cleared, when nine women have come forward, I'm sorry, no. It's very different with Kesha and Dr. Luke. It was a he said, she said case. As far as I know, nobody else has come forward talking about Dr. Luke. That does not mean that Kesha is lying or not telling the truth when she says he harassed and raped her and made her life a misery. But in a weird resolution to this decade long case, they were about to go to trial. Both of them gained something from court rulings as the trial approached, and they both agreed, released joint statements, neither of which ceding any ground to the other, but they both are walking away from this case. So that's a mess as well, but it's quite different from Luc Passon's case in which you have nine women coming forward to talk about how he treated them. In this case, it's Kesha and Dr. Luke. A lot of major female stars rallied to Kesha, but it seemed to be, from what I could tell, more about women showing solidarity and acknowledging what the business is like in general, rather than any personal complaints about Dr. Luke. Uh, that doesn't mean she's wrong and he's right or, or the opposite, but we're not going to get any satisfying resolution from this case any more than Luke Basson.
0: So it's no, and, we a not talking
1: about it, but yeah.
0: Yeah, and the legal uh, take on this was, uh, you know, whichever side, after 10 years, there is a lot of money in legal fees that have already racked up. Yeah. And whichever side lost... It was going to decimate the other because then, then if you lost, you were going to pay not only your own legal bills but the legal bills of the other person. So well, they already been... paid half
1: of them. I don't know about that. They're pretty rich people. I don't think they just said, "Well, I can't afford to go any further." After a decade, I think they just realized neither one of them was going to get the satisfaction they wanted. They both made their case in public, and you know he's back working, and people are working with him. She just wants to move on with her life and. And doesn't feel she's going to get any more satisfaction from the courts than she's already gotten. But I don't know; it's not easy. But uh, you know, that's 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 these cases. That's why they're so hard to prove in court. That's why even when you know people say we want to pay attention, we're going to listen to you, we're going to believe you, meaning we're going to take seriously what people say. uh, That doesn't mean you're going to get a resolution and and a and a and a happy ending for whatever your stance is. And as always, when a man's accused of sexual assault or rape. He is tarred with that for the rest of his life, but when nine women come forward, you cannot dismiss that in any way, shape, or form. But we've got streaming news very quickly. Netflix did make a tweak to its charts. They are now saying, look, we'll show you total number of views for a property, whether it's a movie or a miniseries or even a season. We'll tell you if a movie's two hours long and it was watched for 100 hours, we'll say, okay, that movie got 50 views. Now, even if they watch two minutes of it, it counts as a view, but you get the idea. In general, it adds up and you get a sense of how popular it was. So you can compare 50 views of that movie to 50 views of a TV show where there's a full season of eight episodes and they, they watch some of those eight episodes. Well, that counts as a view as well. Whether they watched, you know, you add it all up and you can say, okay, the number of hours watched will always be greater, but you'll get in compare of total views. So it's a little more of an easy comparison between stuff that's different length, a movie versus a miniseries versus a TV show. So it's a slightly better comparison, but they're not actually opening up the black box and showing us what's going on. They're just saying, well, this is an easier way to compare movies versus TV shows.
0: Yeah, I mean, especially... You know, when you're scrolling through Netflix and it kind of auto-plays the trailer or Mm -hmm. or a piece of the film, does that count as a view? Because if so, then you'll- They change it like
1: like 30 seconds or 90 seconds counts, which is ridiculous. So there you go. They also said, look, I was always complaining, Netflix placed so much emphasis on how much a show was watched in its first 28 days. I'm like, why do you care? If it catches fire in five months, why doesn't that matter? They've now expanded when they do their all-time most popular list, for the first three months from the first month basically to 91 days or the first three months. They also still separate their titles by language. Why not do one big list too? Who cares? If Squid Game is number one, it should be number one. You know, but, but there you go. So they've made a slight tweak and, uh, you know, there we go. I don't know. It's not a big deal because they didn't really open up the box and show us what's going on.
0: There you go. There's a lob. <laughs> Thank you for the softball, because it must be time for Big Deal or Big Whoop, our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines and entertainment, and we tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story, the Grammy Awards. Why don't Michael and I have one? Oh, wait, no, I'm (laughs) sorry. That's not that's the Grammy Awards have added three new categories to cover the ever-changing, ever-mutating world of popular music. They've added Best new African music performance. Michael, I don't think we can win that one. I'm going to just no. be up front. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, this new category should shine a spotlight on the many African styles of music ranging from high life and bongo flavor to Afro beats to en- Dumbolo. I and think Dumbolo act- and Dumbolo. Yeah. Well, t- these are just to name a few, by the way. And I think you honestly put these into the yep. <laughs> notes just to see if I could pronounce them. And apparently the answer is, no, I cannot. Uh, at the same time, it should allow the best global music performance category, which was just launched in 2022, to not be dominated by African music all the time, which had nowhere else to be recognized. Similar thinking, a desire to celebrate styles of music slipping through the cracks is behind the addition of best pop dance recording and best alternative jazz recording. I'm submitting Showbiz Sandbox as best alternative jazz recording with a backing track. What do you
1: think? shoo
0: yes there we go we're we're in we are in uh does all of this by the way have a good beat and can you dance to it and is this a big deal or a big whoop
1: oh well it's a big whoop of course a tweak to the categories there are like a hundred plus categories but it's important they also made a change to the big four awards that's album best new artist song and record they're limiting them to eight nominees which i'm like oh Top ten, I like top tens. But anyway, to be eligible for a Grammy, however, you must contribute to twenty percent of a project. So if you co wrote one song on an album of the year contender, no statue for you. And by the way, ChatGBT is not eligible for a Grammy. Finally, the Grammys will be held on February fourth next year. That's five months after eligible albums are released. You know, you have to release them, you know, by the end of uh Uh, September 15th, I think. So now imagine if the Oscars were held in May or June, five months after the final eligible film came out on December 31st.
0: Nobody would care. Right.
1: Well, yeah, uh, you know, and plus, of course, when you do a cutoff date of September 15th, you're ignoring all the big albums that come out around Thanksgiving and Christmas. They have to wait another year and a half, practically 15 or 16 months for the following Grammys. This is a perennial problem with the Grammys. It's hard because there's so much music, but you know what? They really should have the Grammys in summer anyway. I think that would be fine to do it for the Grammys. They should be in April or May. They should not be in February. They should be leading off the summer season. All the big albums come out by December 31st. You got to give them a few weeks to catch up. But I think April, May, I know there's lots of other stuff you got to worry about in that, in that mix. But frankly, kick off the summer season, kick off the concert season, have lots of performances, and let all the albums of the year be eligible, be seen on the Grammys. There's no need to be in February. Make it April. That's my thought.
0: Well, a a couple of things here. First off, the the real big story here uh, about the Grammy Awards is they are, the Academy is going to be going for profit. They're filing a, you know, they're going to be going from not profit to for profit in i think this year or next year so that's in the works uh i would say i agree with you on the timing i think it's it's uh and i also want to know what what is alternative jazz isn't jazz alternative to begin with no
1: jazz used to be the number one genre in america but yes you know it changes all the time but um
0: you're uh, talking to a trumpet player of course i know so yeah (laughs) oh okay (laughs) yeah um the the joke was you know more kind of the standard joke about jazz Speaking of music, by the way, since we're talking about music, let's discuss some records set in the last few weeks. Country superstar Morgan Wallen woke up to the news that his new album, One Thing at a Time, was at number one on the billboard billboard charts for the 15th non-consecutive week. That is a mouthful. Number one on the billboard charts for the 15th non-consecutive week. It's like a tongue twister, Uh, by the way, that's the most for any album since Adele's Blockbuster 21 more than a decade ago. Plus, Morgan Wallen is at number one with his single Last Night on the Hot 100, while Luke Combs' cover of Fast Car is at number two. The last time two country songs were at number one and number two was back in 1981, or as Harrison Ford likes to call it, my Blade Runner year. Uh, <laughs> I think that was... But yeah, I th- 82, was, I think, maybe. Oh, yeah. Maybe that was the Raiders of the Lost Ark year. Uh, when Eddie Rabbit, by the way, in that year was number one uh, with uh, I Love a Rainy Night, and Dolly Parton was number two with nine to five. I question whether either of those is country, but we'll leave that at. You're alone. saying Dolly
1: Parton's not country?
0: Well, she's country, but is nine to five country? I Heck don't know. Yeah. Well, you know, okay, fine. Country is a very hot genre. Madonna made history as well with a new song hitting the hot 100. That means she's charted with an original tune in five different decades. Only a handful of acts have done that, by the way, even with Christmas songs in the mix. But for acts with a new song charting in each decade, she joins this illustrious group, Ray Charles, Cher, the only other woman, by the way, Michael Jackson, (laughs) Elton John, Paul McCartney. Ozzy Osbourne. Ozzy Osbourne. That's shocking. Yes, keep going. Elvis Presley. Thank you very much. Uh, Smokey Robinson and the Rolling Stones, Santana, and Stevie Wonder. If you count their times in groups, Michael Jackson and Paul McCartney, by the way, are the only two to chart in seven decades. And finally. Cast Album to Hamilton has been certified diamond by the RIAA. What does that mean exactly? We don't really know except that it means the album has streamed and sold the equivalent of 10 million copies or in its case perhaps 5 million copies. We, we I don't know. This is a, how do we break this down? Billboard
1: I <laughs> Somebody. <give it> whoop. <laughs> so, that's a lot of stuff going on there first of all. Uh, Morgan Wallen, uh, that's huge. Country songs being on top of that pop charts for the first time in decades. Uh, Country is the hottest genre around right now, so that's interesting. Madonna is a legend, you know, doing five different decades. That's amazing. And Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson, seven different decades. Good Lord. The problem with Hamilton, uh, the cast album to the Broadway musical Hamilton being certified diamond, this is the whole problem where they're trying to equate sales of albums to streaming. It doesn't work. Everything you do is made up. It doesn't work. They should really just tell us the number of streams it has had, and we can compare streaming to streaming and sales to sales. Um, I doubt it sold a million copies in physical copies, though maybe it has, I don't know. But the other problem is the diamond certificate. That used to mean you sold 10 million copies of an album, but then they decided it wasn't fair to a double album or a box set with 20 discs. And so if you had a double album with two CDs, like say Pink Floyd, The Wall, You only had to sell 5 million copies in order to be certified diamond. The problem there is when you got certified diamond, everyone would say, oh, the wall has sold 10 million copies because that's what they were told diamond meant. So everything is messed up. Hamilton is a double album. It could be a triple album, frankly, if it was a physical product. But it's at least a double album, which means maybe it only did the streaming equivalent of 5 million copies. But we don't know what that is. So stop trying to translate streams into album sales and just rank them in order of streaming. Yes, that will put a line between the albums of today and the albums of yesterday, but it's a new world. People don't buy albums the way they used to. And that does also mean if an album does sell 5 million physical copies today, like maybe Adele has done, that will really mean something. So it's just a mess. And if you talk about it's not the best-selling or the most popular cast album of all time, My Fair Lady, that cast was a monster,
0: a monster. So there you go. So when I was in Barcelona, I ran across a store. It was called Jazz Messengers. It was a store. It was heaven for me. It was all jazz music. Records. And, th- and that's, of course, a famous
1: band, Art Blakely, and the Jazz Messengers is one
0: of the famous uh, jazz groups of right. all time. Right. And, and this store had been around 40 years. Cool. And all these CDs. The irony here is that I might actually have a way to listen to a, an LP, a vinyl LP. I was like, oh, I want to, you know, hey, we bought this CD. Wait, where am I going to play this? <laughs> like,
1: I <laughs> Don't you have a car? You don't have a CD player in your car anymore? No. The, oh, the, I do they, still.
0: Yeah. I mean, so it's, I'm like, oh, oh, wait a second. Uh, how am I going to? Oh, it's on Spotify. Okay. So I bought the, <laughs> bought the album and I'm going to have to stream it.
1: No. You can buy a Bose radio player with a CD in it, or you can a little boom box or something like that. Oh, well, that's
0: true. Well, if you want to win an Oscar, Michael, do you want to win an Oscar? Do you want to win an Oscar for Best Picture is my I question. Do. I do. Yeah, well, well, here's the thing. You're going to have to release that film around the country, the United States. Kind of. That's the skinny on new requirements released by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences starting in 2024. Movies that want to be eligible for best picture cannot have a one week and done release in L.A. and New York. Yes, we're looking at you, Netflix. First, (laughs) you will need a one week run in a top market. So let's start there. Then within six weeks, you must release the film in 10 of the top 50 markets. They do some fiddling for movies released at the end of the year, and they will allow a commercial release in two countries. In fact, overseas counts for two of those 10 required markets, so There is no requirement for exclusivity. So you should be on
1: Netflix and be in a theater. Okay. Correct.
0: You just need to show your movie in, you know, what we like to refer to you and I, Michael, maybe not the rest of the world, as a movie theater somewhere (laughs) around the country and not just say off the top of my head, the Paris Theater in New York City, for example, owned by Netflix. It's a movie, by the way. So it should be in movie theaters. Then we can talk about that best picture nomination. Big deal or big whoop?
1: It mostly looks like a big whoop. People went back and said just like the diversity requirements that they can't be made, virtually every movie that's been nominated for best picture in the last decade has qualified via those diversity requirements as far as they can tell, and very and would be very easy to fill in one box if you hadn't. Same thing is true for these release patterns. I was like, "Well, what about everything everywhere all at once?" It's weird because they say you have to go wide within 45 days or at least in these extra markets. I'm like, well, what if you're like a limited release and that's where it might be a problem? Art house movies, international films that are in just New York and LA that might slowly build an audience, they're not ready necessarily in 45 days. But, uh, you know, from what we can tell, pretty much everything has, except for things like documentaries and international animated films. That's where stuff is really going to fall through the cracks. And if you're unintentionally making sure a documentary film can't be nominated for a best picture that's not a good thing. It seems like a good idea, but they're getting lost in the weeds.
0: Yeah, it's, you know, for Too many, too many
1: codicils and too many, within 45 days, you must be in six markets. And it's like, studios don't care. They'll match it anyway. But for the weird little guys, it may be a problem.
0: That's where I was headed. The, the little guys, the problem. Speaking of problems, one of the slow rolling disasters in sports, this is just a horrible story. It revolves around regional sports networks. We've talked about this before, Michael. Uh, here in the United States. Uh, They cover everything from college football to professional baseball and beyond. Warner Brothers Discovery, they have in no uncertain terms said, we want out of this business entirely. So (laughs) just get, no, no, hot potato, you take it. And smaller players like Diamond Sports are failing to pay the bills. In fact, they filed for bankruptcy. That means the rights to some games are reverting back to their teams. That's where Major League Baseball steps in, because they, they you know, these RSNs, they've got a lot of baseball coverage. It, you know, MLB, they knew some game broadcasts would suddenly be orphaned and they got ready. When Diamond Sports failed to make payments to the San Diego Padres, that meant TV coverage was endangered, leaving most fans in the lurch. But MLB and its TV branch, I think it's called, believe it or not. MLB TV, uh, they they were ready to step in with cameras, graphics, and a team in place within 24 hours. And without missing a game, they were putting on coverage of games over the next few weeks and months. More and more games will either be broadcast on the RSNs by a team from MLB or not be seen at all, including games from the Texas Rangers, Arizona Diamondbacks. You already mentioned the Padres. I believe the St. Louis Cardinals fall into that category. So do the California Angels or Los Angeles Angels. I don't know what, which, how they define themselves these days, but they're ready now. Big deal or big whoop?
1: Well, it's a big deal that they've got a plan in action. It's a big deal that this is happening. The whole way of doing business is sort of collapsing. And the fans in the stands are window dressing. You know, Atlanta has a really successful soccer team in terms of their audience participation because they have cheap tickets with cheap soda and hot dogs and cheap refills for soda for the kids, and they pack their stands every week, which makes for a great product when you're showing that game to people at home because it's the audiences at home that really dominate. So you want to put on the best show you can. That means you want to fill the stands. Baseball has forgotten that. So teams have made their games harder and harder to see for regular folk. That's another problem. From being shown on local TV stations to cable and now streaming, you know, unless you you subscribe to everything, you can't ever say, oh, the team's starting to get good. Maybe I'll check out a game. You already have to be a fan and subscribing to that service in order to casually decide to watch a game. So they've really made it hard for new fans to grow. They've really made it hard for the casual fan. And that, that hardcore fan is getting smaller and smaller. And for all the problems faced by professional sports, college sports are in the same predicament. But as far as I can tell, no one is ready to step in when these RSNs are collapsing.
0: You know, uh, this is one of the reasons that kind of, I've always said it's like subsidizing these sports networks, Mm -hmm. uh, whether it's ESPN or the RSNs, because you basically have, and I'm going to say grandma and grandpa who don't watch the games, they subscribe to cable. They never turn on ESPN, but they're paying $5 a month for it anyway because they just wanted the basic cable and it could be, you know, families. I say grandma and grandpa just as a, you know, it doesn't have to be. Well, that was a good thing for the
1: sport because it meant homes that had these sports and were not rabid fans. They could say, oh, the team's playing well. I want to check out a game. Or they could say, oh, my friend told me about a show on the cooking channel, which I would not subscribe to. But they say, you know, Beat Bobby Flay is really fun. And they can turn to channel and start watching it with no... Even with an ease of use, because they're already there on their TV. When you make it hard for people to just tune in something, it becomes much harder to win new fans.
0: Well, and as people continue to unsubscribe, cut. not you know cut the cut the cord there, and they're going to streaming services, uh, all of a sudden that subscriber base is dropping, and that's why ESPN. One of the reasons they laid off uh, all you Damn. know all of these. I know that we're talking about that later, right? Yep, yep, yep. Okay, well then let me, let me. Uh, speaking of layoffs here, uh, if regional sports networks are facing a crisis, this just blew me away, by the way, this next story. The yeah. news is just as dire for regional theaters like the Mark Taper Forum in Los Angeles and the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. That's a huge festival, by the way. People from all over the world fly in into Oregon for that particular festival. And by the way, no one is poised to swoop in and rescue any of these institutions. The Mark Taper Forum sent a chill through the theatrical community around the country when it simply, they just canceled their new season. Chicago's Looking Glass followed suit and also, you know, fired half of its staff while Brooklyn's BAM and others cut away, they cut way back on programming and they're kind of laying off staff as well. Why? Well, corporate donations are way down. Ticket sales, they're also way down. Audiences, they're not returning post-pandemic and they face major deficits. It was either pause or shut it down for good. The L.A. Times has a major story looking at the crisis other powerhouse venues are facing. That was a great story. It's by uh, Charles McNulty. The Oregon Shakespeare Festival has just half the staff it employed pre-COVID and cut its new season from 10 shows to five. The public theater in New York City ended its annual Under the Radar Festival, a key promoter of innovative theater from around the world. The Dallas Theater Center saw subscriptions collapse to less than 40 percent of its pre-COVID levels, shrank its budget and is laying off an undisclosed number of staff. The story is really the same all over the country here in the United States. Big deal or big whoop?
1: Well, it's a big deal. This is the post-COVID world. Regional theater is collapsing, and regional theater has been the source of most of the best and freshest shows that have been playing on Broadway uh, for the past 20 years now. So this is really hurting the ecosystem of theater around the country. People go to these theaters all the time. Playwright Jeremy O'Hara says, you know what, this problem is decades in the making. Um, He blames in part subscription plans, where they would just have really safe programming to appeal to the lowest common denominator. Their audiences would get older and older. And so they would program safer and safer Broadway shows as part of their season and maybe try one new show. But they were not appealing to new audiences. They were not appealing to younger audiences. They were not appealing to people who didn't have a ton of money. Because if you don't have a subscription, you get a really bad seat. And that just creates a high barrier to entry. So uh, there's a lot of things going on here. It's not all about COVID. He also says, look what we've been doing for decades, just choking off innovation and." Reflecting your local community rather than just being a big shed that a Broadway show can stop in on its way around the country. So it's well, very and upsetting.
0: I would say the Mark Taper Forum here in Los Angeles. It would often be kind of a launching point. for Oh, certain- absolutely, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so they would put on shows. And not all of them worked, and they'd be the first to say, "Oh, yeah, that one didn't really work. Um, that play didn't work." Or- but hey, you know what? This other playwright, we we found this playwright, and we put on their show first, and. And all of a sudden, they're winning Tonys. Uh, That's that's how it works. Right. And so the other thing here with the Mark Taper Forum is that they, the Center Theater Group, which is what runs the Mark Taper Forum, they uh, have a new director, uh, a new creative director. And none of the shows next year, so the 23-24 year, were, were his. So the, you know, he's saying there's there's some talk about well, you know, he just kind of bagged the other. That's but not, that's the, the not, reality yeah. is, it's happening all over the country. So
1: right, and they're, and they're, and the one show that everybody talks about by an indigenous American, they have sworn that they are going to make happen, and they will showcase that show. They're not, you know, it was a season where they were really pushing female playwrights and people of color forward. It's not an attempt to go back on that by any stretch. It's just. Uh, you know, there was going to be, if they if they blew what little money they had left on this season, there'd be nothing for him to program the following year. They were just, you know, up against a wall. Um, so we're not going to blame it on the season that was there the year before. That does happen in studios. People show up, they don't want to promote the movie that the last guy greenlit. So they like let it fall through the cracks or they ignore it or they let it die before it gets made. You know, that that's, you know, clearing the deck happens. It doesn't happen in theater like that because it's, there's too long a, uh, uh, an advanced plan for these types of shows to do that sort of thing.
0: There's some there's some faulting right now that that is what's happening at DC. Uh, you know, you have uh, some new heads over there at DC, uh, the, the the studio behind all the DC comics. Oh, James uh, Gunn, you mean? Yeah, yeah, James Gunn, and yeah, uh, and Peter Safran, and they basically said we're going to retool everything. Everything is going to be redone, and meanwhile, it's like uh, you have four films yet to come out, and you they and they, tr- they tub
1: thumped them, and they they tried to make them. As big, they didn't drop the ball on the Flash. They didn't badmouth the Flash or say, This is junk. You know, they just, DC's, you know, kind of a mess. They were in fine (laughs) shape. (laughs) Yeah. You know, they had good movies. They had movies that were commercially successful and they acted like the thing was falling apart, you know, when they fired their last head. But anyway.
0: Speaking of uh, things that, uh, are a kind of a mess. Spotify loudly announced it had overpaid for tons of podcast exclusives and the future would be different. Now, who could have predicted this would happen? Michael, when we did it four years ago and predicted that this would happen. Everybody, everybody. Well... Spotify, they're still happy with Joe Rogan, but are otherwise rethinking their approach to the genre. At the same time, lots of podcast creators decided getting an exclusive deal was cool, but, you know, not so good for finding the largest, largest possible audience. Who could have predicted this would happen, Michael, when we predicted it was four years ago. Uh, You know, you can change channels between CBS and ABC, but if you're on Apple Music, you will never hear a podcast on Spotify. That's just the way it is. Vice versa is true. If you're on Spotify, you're not going to hear it on Apple Music. So ignore the caddiness of if Bill If it's Sim- an
1: exclusive, yeah.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, of course. Um, ignore Bill Simmons, who, by the way, hated Prince Harry and Meghan Markle and badmouth the duo before, during, and after their time at Spotify. However, the Royals only produced 12 episodes and a holiday special of one series before parting ways with Spotify. But Simmons, he called them grifters. Take a step back, though. Other big names with exclusive deals at Spotify have also parted ways. The Obamas, Esther Perel, Jamel Hill. So those big, flashy, exclusive deals are over. Of course, later the same day, Spotify announced a new flashy, exclusive deal with Trevor Noah. So my question is, can we be guests on Trevor's first episode? And Is this a big deal or a big whoop?
1: Uh, It's a big whoop. It's a long overdue correction. They've talked about it publicly. It's not a big reflection on Harry and Meghan. I think uh, they, by the way, have a much bigger deal in place with Netflix worth a lot more money. And the first documentary series on them was a huge success. And up next is an inspirational take on Invictus Games, which makes sense. That could be successful too. But in general, when you go in business with people who have no experience making podcasts or documentary films, you are making a roll on the dice, but that's how those big flashy deals work, right? You take a, you're either banking on somebody new who's never done it, or you're, grabbing an established person like Shonda Rhimes and you're making a lot of money off them. So they rolled the dice on some people. Maybe it worked with Obama, maybe it didn't. Maybe it worked with Harry and Meghan, maybe it didn't. But, you know, what'd you expect? They've never done it before.
0: Well, and uh, in the 80s, I knew a DJ uh, who would play clubs. In I New knew it. a rapper. Well, uh, wait a second. Is this, is this like a DJ Keep going, jazzy, keep going, keep going. J- okay. Anyway, uh, he all of a sudden stopped. And I said, well, why? you know, you're not playing the limelight. You're not playing the palladium. Why did why, you stop? And he said, you know what? Because every bozo with a, with a uh, record player thinks they're a, de- thinks they're a DJ. Well, you know what? This ain't easy, people. What Michael and I do is not easy. You can't just oh, start it no. up because is, you're No,
1: no, no. We're not going <laughs> to. Uh, by the way, we've passed the one hour mark. So thank you for still listening as we haven't even gotten to inside baseball yet. Tell us, Sperling, what's going to happen in that episode?
0: Well, Inside Baseball is where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and, more importantly, how they affect you. We're going to talk about
1: TCM and then we're going to talk about Price, Waterhouse, Cooper and their predictions.
0: Yeah, well, David Zasloff says he wants filmmakers to find a home at Warner Brothers. (laughs) You know, the kind of home where you find a dysfunctional family, maybe. Then he guts the beloved cable channel Turner Classic Movies, fires top management, slashes, slashes their already tiny budget and then backtracks when Steven Spielberg, Martin Scorsese and Paul Thomas Anderson ask You know, hey, uh, Mr. Zaslav, we need to meet with you. Uh, Christopher Nolan, by the way, didn't even bother. He was like, yeah, I'm not talking to that guy. Zaslav says he loves TCM and it's super awesome. And he assigns execs to, quote unquote, curate the channel like it's a hobby. They can handle it on the side, like do it on like Friday afternoons. Execs Michael DeLuca and Pam Abdi will have creative control. Not so many people will be fired. The three directors will be quote unquote, actively involved. And everyone is excited about the future. Who knows? Maybe they won't even kill the film festival.
1: Yeah. Look, at TCM is profitable. What, what, what do you gain by gutting its modest budget in the first place? Yes, you've got billions of dollars in debt. TCM is not part of the problem. It's only a positive PR thing for you that makes a tiny amount of money. But their dream of like supercharging TCM will have George Clooney come on the air and talk about a movie. And that'll get people to really, it's like, No, it's not. It's not going to be supercharged into some big ratings behemoth. It's just what it is. It was profitable. Leave it alone. And you know what? They had the film festival, and you know Zaslav would show up at that. That was the best press he got in the past year, probably. And now they fired the people who were involved in the festival. Now they're not necessarily fired. Now some people who were gone are coming back. Maybe they won't screw it over completely. But you know, it's it's ridiculous. They moved them out of their offices. They had no set office space for the people at TCM. They've already cut two-thirds of the staff salary budget and their new office space, you know, they didn't have any room for the old vintage posters and photos that decorated the walls. They said, well, throw them out or give them away. It's like, oh my God. And Zaslav, frankly, has been reportedly, he's just pissed people are telling him how to run his company. It's like, Way to deal with feedback. Hey, that little channel that you're trying to woo filmmakers—they really, really like that channel, and you publicly said you like that channel, and it's profitable. So maybe you shouldn't piss on it. But he's just annoyed that people are like daring to tell him what he's doing. Well, you know, when you're screwing up, you deserve it. By the way, well, not- also
0: those posters that are on the wall—they oh, are yeah. part of one of the best Hollywood archives in uh-huh. the world. So maybe and they're part of the 550 billion you paid for Warner Brothers. So just <laughs> well, hold on well, to them.
1: Yeah. Well, by the way, everybody's firing people. Over at Disney, uh, they have National Geographic, the channel and the magazine. The magazine just fired its last staff writer. Uh, it's a sad petering out of a once great brand. They're now reduced to freelancers like me. Not that I write for National Geographic. Disney also fired a big chunk of their on-air talent at ESPN. Uh, two things going on here. They're making less and less money from cable subscriptions. Of course, they're in less homes and basketball in particular, which is where a big chunk of those people were uh, working. You don't want to tie your wagon to professional basketball. Yes, March Madness is a big deal, but pro basketball has really been losing in the eyeball and demographic race for years. Young people are not watching pro basketball. Older people are you know, cutting their cable cord or their not as valuable anymore. So, those people who worked in basketball, they were the ones who took the biggest hit.
0: Well, and, and, uh, you know, I would say I, I'm just shocked at the whole National Geographic of it all. I mean, I thought it was a bad idea when, when it was sold to News Corp and, and sold to Fox. I was like, why are they buying this? This is. Well, they turned it into a profitable
1: TV channel, but then they right. screwed up the legacy of the brand by, you know, running crap like they do on the History Channel about alien, you know, crappy pseudo documentaries. Um, but yes, it's a valuable brand, but subscriptions are not what they used to be in print. People just don't get print magazines anymore. They have a vibrant website, but when you don't have a staff to can create content, it's not going to work well.
0: Well, and then there's the firm PricewaterhouseCoopers, aka PwC, is kind of how m- most people refer to them now. They have uh, a lot to say about the entertainment business. They always do. Its annual report came out and the news is, well, mixed. Not so great. I don't know. How, how would you say this? Here's a look at the numbers it offers on TV and streaming as well as theatrical and what we think about said prognostications. So <laughs> hit it, Michael.
1: Well, you're no, you read it and then and then you ask me oh, what the magic okay. eight ball says. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. OK, so we're doing a magic eight ball thing. OK, let that's me just right. shake it up here. Traditional pay TV subscriptions. The company predicts that in four years, less than 40 percent of homes will subscribe to traditional pay TV by 2027. That's. That seems like awfully fast, but that would amount to just 50 million homes. By the way, that's half of the 100 million homes that pay TV reached in 2016. Global TV subscriptions will fall from almost 200 billion dollars in 2017 to one hundred and seventy five billion in 2027. Wow. Okay,
1: falling down. What about streaming?
0: Well, global streaming is stuttering, but growing. So don't expect more than $175 billion in t- uh, 2027. Hey, I'd be happy with just $1 billion, okay? Mm-hmm. If you just gave me the one, I'd be happy. Overall growth continues, but at a slower pace, with SVOD, subscription video on demand, slowing in AVOD, the advertising version of that, an area of promise. So what does the Magic 8-Ball say, Michael? Tell us. Hmm, the Magic 8-Ball says,
1: concentrate and ask again. Why? Because there, that is, of course, an actual answer from the Magic 8-Ball. They're asking the wrong question. What's the total audience spend on TV? Netflix aside, most streamers really only started in earnest in the last five years. So yes, it means there are different winners and losers, different players may be reaping the rewards, but it sure sounds like $175 billion in paid TV and $175 billion in growing in streaming is a lot bigger together than they were together a decade ago. I I can't swear to that, but that's what it looks like. And by the way, everybody's making deals now. Warner Brothers Discovery, they're licensing old HBO shows. Sure, they yanked Westworld from Max and put it on a fast channel. Now, the Issa Rae comedy Insecure will be airing on Netflix, along with Band of Brothers uh, and other things. HBO is also going to be doing Ballers in the Pacific and Six Feet Under. Meanwhile, um, uh, what's their name? Disney, they are selling shows to Channel 4. In London and Channel 4 is launching a new streaming service and Disney is making available Abbott Elementary, um, The X-Files and other shows like that. So everybody's saying, even if I have it on my streaming service, I don't mind licensing out to other streamers because I can make money on it. You know, The X-Files, people are happy to find it on Disney, but they don't mind having people see it on other services as well because they can make money off of it. So, you know, syndication, it's not there like it used to be, but licensing sure is.
0: Well, and I say, look, license it to a fast channel, license it to Netflix. Well,
1: a uh, fast channel is your own channel, so you don't license it. You just set up a fast channel.
0: Well, either way, you know, put it on the fast channel, and then people that don't want to pay for Netflix, they can watch it on fast. And guess what? You're making money that way. License it to Netflix, and people that are subscribed to Netflix, they'll watch it there. And guess what? You're making money that way. And if so, it's on
1: your own... But they're also dumping it from their own service because they think that, they can that save That so I much. do
0: not get. I do not. Well, oh, actually, well, I do get it. Because That's it, a well, tax thing. That's a tax well, thing.
1: Well, not a tax thing just, but every year it's on a streamer, they have to pay out uh, what we can call, for a better term, residuals. You know, if yeah. it's on your streamer for that year, you got to pay a certain amount of money. But surely everyone could agree, okay, once it's been on there for three years or five years, you know, we change, fiddle with the formula to make sure you don't have to pay so much money that you just dump it. And you know what, if it disappears from the streamer and it's not licensed to anyone else, it stops existing. If I had a contract, I would make sure they at least released physical products so somebody somewhere could look at
0: it. Well, so the thing is because of this merger, there's a set limited time after a merger and acquisition where you can take the well, that's assets. That's a
1: different thing, yeah, that's a different And that's issue. the tax yes. thing,
0: yeah. Uh, PwC says movie admissions will continue to lag behind pre-pandemic levels. So we've
1: moved on to movies. We're talking about, yes. you know, theatrical exhibition now. So they say yes. movie admissions will lag. It's not it's not going to catch up. What did they say?
0: Well, in 4 years, they predict cinemas worldwide might sell, you know, 7.2 billion tickets, which is 10% lower than the 7.9 billion t- tickets sold in 2019. What does the Magic 8 Ball say? Will ticket sales lag even yeah, I don't know, four years from now, are they still going to be lagging? The Magic 8-Ball says, don't
1: count on it. Why should they lag four years from now? I, don't, I can't see any reason. The argument that people have lost the desire to go to a movie, I don't buy it. Super Mario Brothers. Make a good movie. Release them in theaters. Put out a bad movie. That's not, that's not an explanation for people not wanting to go to the movies. Put out a good movie. Makes a $1.3 billion. And I don't buy the idea that only a handful of movies can be a success story. Release enough movies. Steadily, I see no reason why people won't go back to the theater just like they did pre-pandemic. Nothing has changed that dramatically.
0: The only thing I would say is, hey, make better movies. Also, well, that, we that don't helps. need Fast and Furious 5002, okay? That, that's well, well,
1: well, well, franchises have always been part of the business. The only thing I will say is you don't need to put it in on streaming 17 days later. That will squelch box office 45 days that's a perfectly quick turnaround time to be in somebody's home. And if it's making money in the theaters, you can wait even
0: longer. Okay, so let's talk about box office gross because on the bright side, PWC says people will be paying more for those tickets thanks to IMAX and other large format screens. They predict will hit Worldwide box office gross of 46.5 billion dollars by 2025, roughly equal to pre-COVID levels and continue to grow to 52 billion dollars in 2027. Right. So, what they're, does so the-
1: they're saying they're saying we won't sell as many tickets, but we're going to charge a lot more for them.
0: <laughs> right. Well, <that's, laughs> and the that's box the office t- will be back there. Yep. OK. Yeah. That's basically, by the way, what. Television ads are doing. They're saying, well, people aren't watching television ads anymore. Pay attention for them. <laughs> You're right. Uh, what does the Magic 8 Ball say? Will grosses hit pre COVID peaks by the end of 2025?
1: Well, the Magic 8 Ball says, signs point to yes. Since we believe ticket sales will get back to earlier levels, all things the same, why shouldn't box office grosses? Yes, but you know, you're know you going to make more money off large format screens, but don't get addicted to that. The solution to every time there's a slowdown is not to charge
0: more money. Look at opera. <laughs> also, look at Tuesday. When you look at like uh, yeah. no hard feelings and you look at the Tuesday gross, it goes from like $1.5 million on a, on a Monday to like $2.8 million on a Tuesday because of the discount Tuesdays. Hmm, interesting yep. that. You know, almost twice the amount of money. Well, what about blockbusters? What do they say about that? They say those stores are closed for good. They're never. <laughs> oh, well, PwC, all, they also say the biggest movies will account for even more of total revenue at the box office, which that's like, what, what do you like? Yeah. Okay. I, even, even a newborn could predict that. What does the Magic 8-Ball say, though? Well, the Magic 8-Ball says, reply hazy,
1: try again. First, it depends on how you define the biggest movies. If they mean the handful of movies that gross the most, yes, of course. But what they really mean is the big budget tentpoles that cost $200 million or more. But look at Joker. That 2019 film cost $60 million. Yes, it was, uh, you know, classic IP, but it grossed a billion dollars around the world. It was rated R and it only cost $60 million. Look at Knives Out. Uh, Yes, a small handful of films often hauling the most money, but it's not always the movies you think. And we've looked again and again at mid-size and low-budget movies going back five years from 2019 back to 2014 and 15. And guess what? Again and again, uh, they account for a third or more of the biggest movies of the year on the total box office. Those surprises, the John Wicks and the Jokers of the world, are hugely important to the total box office. So the only reason the Magic 8-Ball says it's hazy is because they don't know if people are going to keep releasing smaller and mid-sized movies to the box office. If they are in steady supply again, that's not just good news for exhibitors and streamers. It's also good news for the overall box office, because if they release them, people will come.
0: Well, and I would say, you know, yeah, uh, don't, get, don't get me started. China. Let's talk about China for a second because finally, PwC says China will be the number one market by 2027 with $13 billion in revenue compared to a measly $12 billion in North America. Gee, when you have 1.4 billion pe- people and you have 300. Yeah, I think that's probably true, but what does the Magic 8 Ball say?
1: Well, the Magic 8 Ball says it is decidedly so. Like you say, China has more than a billion people, its middle class is larger than the entire population. Of the United States. There's no reason on earth why it shouldn't be the number one market, all things the same. China could slow that down, of course, by kneecapping Hollywood movies like it's been doing. There certainly could be an economic downturn or even an economic collapse, relatively limited to China for internal reasons that wouldn't affect the U.S. or the rest of the world as much. But barring an act of Mao, China will soon be the number one film market in the world. Why not? Well, I don't, think
0: keep... it's gonna, I don't think it's going to kill off the U.S. market. Or the no, world it's, it's market. not a
1: competition. No, it, 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 it's good for everybody. We want strong markets in France and Australia and Korea and China and Japan, Japan. and Spain yeah. and, and Brazil and Nigeria and India. And the more good movies they have that go to the rest of the world, the more good directors they create that can travel around the world and the more Hollywood movies can do well in those countries the more everybody benefits. It's not a zero-sum game here about them being the number one market in the world. But even on this prediction, which we relatively agree with, they're saying that we'll have 13 billion versus 12 billion. That's not such a big difference. So you can see how Hollywood could still every once in a while be on top, uh, especially with all those extra factors in place. But yeah, long-term, when you got four times the size or more than three times the size of the population, if they've got enough money, there's no reason why they couldn't be a bigger market.
0: Well, I'm gonna try this once again. It's not like the rest of the world's film industry will be dead. Ah, <laughs> many people died and Sperling doesn't care. That is that is not true.
1: Well I, I just well, I, there's, there's at, just a
0: lot a lot of them an hour smoking stop smoking. Stop smoking. We talked about Cormac tr- McCarthy the last time, by the way. Y- did we? Yes we did. That was so long ago
1: I can't remember. Wow. Okay. Well, there you go. Many people died. Sperling doesn't care. Spanish star Carmen Sevilla died at 92. She was one of Spain's biggest stars, and she starred in the first Spanish film to be nominated for the Academy Award for Best Foreign Film. That was Vengeance. Actor Treat Williams died unexpectedly at the age of 71. I know him from Follies on Broadway. You know him from Everwood, and of course, his good films like Prince of the City and Once Upon a Time in America. His best performance, I would say, is Smooth Talk with Laura Dern. That is one of his early film roles, and it's a great one. Uh, Tony and Oscar winner Alan Arkin died at the age of 89. His career did not begin and end with Little Miss Sunshine, people. There's the Sunshine Boys, which he directed on Broadway and got a Tony nomination for. He went from Second City in Chicago to Broadway to Hollywood fame. Check out The In-Laws if you haven't seen that movie, but my favorite credit for him, it's a recurring role on the animated series BoJack Horseman, he played the reclusive author J.D. Salinger. I just think that's hilarious. And I'm kind of a jerk. Legendary editor Robert Gottlieb died at the age of 92. He worked with a ton of big names like Tony Morrison and Ray Bradbury. But as soon as I heard about it, I thought, oh, my God, Robert Caro never going to finish his book. He's never going to finish that LBJ book. That's a terrible reaction to have to somebody's death. But they're so famous for his collaboration with the author Robert Caro on The Power Broker and his four volumes on LBJ. They even made a documentary film about them. So you really should check that out. Uh, Glenda Jackson died at 87. She's an Oscar winner twice and a UK politician. Formidable. That is the word for Glenda Jackson. 20 plus years in parliament, as well as acclaimed roles before and after that. She hated, loathed Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher and her policies perhaps even more than Elvis Costello. That's really saying something. They identified the bodies of actor Julian Sand, unfortunately, who went missing while on a hike. He's dead at the age of 65. I love A Room with a View. Tony-winning lyricist Sheldon Harnick. He died at the age of 99. He collaborated with composer Jerry Bach for a dozen years together on hit shows like Fiorello, an unlikely smash hit about New York City Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia. He did She Loves Me, a musical version of one of my favorite films of all time, the shop around the corner, which is a beloved if not quite big as a hit as it deserved. And then there's Fiddler on the Roof, one of the biggest shows of all time. For a while, the longest hit in Broadway history. You can't have a bigger hit than Fiddler on the Roof. But in 1970, these two guys worked on The Rothschilds, a new musical, and they fought over who should be the director, and it led to their breakup. Later in life, they became friends again somewhat, but they never wrote another song together, and neither of them had remotely the same success on their own, which is why sprawling and I are still working on the show together. We know that apart, we can never match the alchemical joy of showbiz sandbox that we've created together.
0: Well, I, I am, uh, I must say, I, I refuse to write another lyric though. That's just,
1: uh... <laughs> Oh, and Lawrence Terman died. Did you know him? You probably knew him, the producer.
0: Yeah. I mean, he was, a, he, he, he was kind of a, like a reliable producer, you know, you could kind of go to him and, he'd always kind of churn out something that was worthwhile. I know well, that some for, people would say, Short Circuit might not be worthwhile, but hey, he my made kids like it. a lot like of it. money.
1: It's a franchise. Yeah. He, he, made, he, worked, he made movies, everything from The Graduate, an Oscar-nominated Best Picture, to John Carpenter's remake of The Thing, to American History X. But for 30 years, he worked at USC teaching about producing until he retired in 2020. He even wrote the book on it. His book, So You Want to Be a Producer?, is a classic manual to the biz and in option the novel The Graduate for a thousand
0: bucks. Well, back then that was like, whoa, that's, that's like $10,000 back, back then. Which is nothing. <laughs> well, okay, fine. But you know what? Before we hit the one hour and 30 minute mark, let me tell you that this particular episode is over, but not next week's episode. So be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher. They're going away, but we're on Spotify, anywhere you can find podcasts. uh, You can usually find us and please do rate and review us in any one of those podcast aggregators that allows you to do so. It helps us out when you do. Links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode, as well as all those ways to subscribe to us or contact us. You can email us at Dirt at ShowbizSandbox.com or you can leave us a voicemail at 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're on Twitter at ShowbizSandbox is our handle. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash ShowbizSandbox is where you can like our page. All that information on our website, ShowbizSandbox.com. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group, MGMT. They can be found on their own website, whoismgmt.com. Michael Giltz has a website, and every week, it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? This week, it's... Let me host your gameshow.com. I am available. Unless it's Wheel of Fortune, in which case lose my number. Um, (laughs) But uh, if you can't find any of Michael's coverage on that website, why not head on over to michaelgilts.com where all of his entertainment coverage is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice.